to Pop the Question, a podcast that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia. We sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are. From Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University, Dr. Melinda Lewis here. I'm your host. It's very special because I'm here with David Stromberg, a writer, translator, and literary scholar who has released Simple Gimple, the definitive bilingual edition of Isaac Beshevisinger's canonical story. Hey, David, thanks for being here. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Can you sum up Simple Gimple in one, maybe two sentences? Sure. Simple Gimple is the story of an orphan and a baker who is essentially married off to a sex worker in this little town uh, with a Jewish community in Poland, in the shtetl and is made the butt of every joke in the village from childhood through adulthood. He believes that his wife is faithful, even though she keeps having kids that couldn't have possibly come from him. Mm. And eventually he has to face the truth when she dies, and then he's visited by the evil spirit and tempted to take revenge on the town. Mm. And the question is, will he or will he not? I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where we start with Bashevis Singer and put him in context as a writer and as a person to better understand where the story goes to your translation. So Bashevis Singer was a Yiddish author, born in Poland, left Poland in 1935, came to America on, on, a, on a tourist visa, ended up managing to get a resident or immigrant visa And in 1939, the war starts Hmm. and just became very clear that international travel was not (laughs) what it had been in 1938 even. And so he's committed essentially himself to the U.S. and started really understanding and adapting himself and analyzing the culture around him. And so by the time that he wrote Simple Gimple, Gimple Tom, in 1945, he had been here for a decade. Mm -hmm. He had really internalized a lot of what was happening and he was starting to formulate himself, even in Yiddish, as an American author. When I was born, my mother asked the midwife, is it a boy or a girl? And the midwife said, neither one, it's a writer. (laughs) By the 60s, he was essentially translating himself, but he still needed the halo of being a translated author, actually. Mm. So he would bring other people along to help with the syntax, because that was he never got very good at. And then he would put their names down as translators. And that's how he'd established himself as a kind of a translated American author Mm. from the Yiddish into the English and slowly built his way. And he would hold the Yiddish manuscript on his lap and translate the story to the, to the English-speaking person, and they would kind of turn his English into English, you know, where his the sentence structure could be Germanic because Yiddish has the Germanic sentence structures, or, or idioms had to be shortened. Listen to something, or now listen. How would you now say? Now hear a story. Now listen to something, or hear something. And now listen to this. Now listen to this. Okay. It was published by Noonday, which was then acquired by FSG. And FSG saw the potential. Roger Strauss and his wife, Dorothea Strauss, connected to Singer on a personal level. She wrote a memoir about Singer, which is not very well known. And they put a lot of effort into forwarding his career. Hmm. And little by little, it grew until he got the Nobel Prize in 1978. And then... He continued publishing till about 1988, around 87, 88, there was an onset of dementia. And so the last couple of years, he wasn't really active. And then he died in 1991. People are asking me often, 
Why do you write in a dying language? Firstly, I like to write ghost stories, and nothing fits a ghost better than a dying language. The deader the language, the more alive is the ghost. Ghosts love Yiddish, they all speak it. Secondly, I believe in resurrection. I'm sure that the Messiah will soon come and millions of Yiddish-speaking corpses will rise from their graves one day. And their first question will be, is there any new Yiddish book to read? How did you come across Singer's work? Because I did math as an undergraduate, I didn't have like a proper Hmm. literature education, like a chronological literary education. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I confused Singer with Sholem Aleichem, for example. (laughs) Now, it sounds like a funny mistake, but now that I'm in the position of editor to the trust, I have gotten requests to my email for permission to use a Shalom Aleichem story. Oh, really? (laughs) And I have to write, you know, back to the person and say, I really appreciate your writing. Isaac B'Sheva Singer is not Shalom Aleichem, and you can actually just use that material because it's in public domain. So I feel like there was like a lot of this name around before I actually got to him. And then I was living in New York and came across a used version of Gimple the Fool, actually, the original translation of Simple Gimple, and expected to be, you know, engaging with something that was this old fashioned thing like Sholem Aleichem. These kind of old shtetl stories, interesting and humorous and critical in their particular way, but not as modern. Mm. And then I started reading it and I was kind of, I think it took a little time to I was, to put things together because I was mostly in shock. Mm. I was like, okay, these are not the themes that I would expect from the person I thought this person was. So mm. who was this person? <laughs> and that's how, I, that's how I discovered. How old were you when that? I guess remember? I must have been 26, 27. Wow. I had no intention at that time of doing a PhD though. One of my teachers from CalArts later said to me, you need a PhD the way you need a driver's license. <laughs> you just need to do it. Yeah. And that's that. And I was like, so, okay. And I was working in publishing, hmm. which has always been my second profession. And so, like I said, I came to it feeling like I should have read this a long time ago. Mm. And the same with Dostoevsky, actually. I, I read them both around the same time. And I ended up writing my PhD on both of them. The influence of Dostoevsky and specifically his narrative techniques on Albert Camus and on Besheva Sanger. So like a fun driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Very light. Very light. Yeah, you know, just go in like a regular Tuesday exactly. to, to get your picture taken. Exactly. Yeah, I will be honest with you. I have never read Dostoevsky. When people say that, the usual answer is, oh, that's really great because you have so much waiting for you <laughs> and you're so excited, et cetera. I would just say, go. Okay. Go write, go read something. Singer wasn't, in my opinion, a very good critic of other people's work. Mm. He had a somewhat old-fashioned aesthetic taste. He had a very modern aesthetic sense. Mm. He could create works that were extremely modern in the sense that they undermined genres and 
deploy genres, meaning、mm-hmm. he specifically would use genres in ways that undermine them at the same time.、Mm-hmm. But his taste was very old fashioned.、Mm-hmm. He didn't like abstract painting, you know, things that for me are probably today would be considered old fashioned, actually. Yeah. <laughs> It didn't do it for him. I was brought up in a home where the supernatural was really our daily life. We all believed in spirit, in angels, and in demons, and in devils. I was born almost with a, with a terrible fear of these higher powers, both a great curiosity and a great fear. And now, at the, the time in my old age, I still have this feeling that I'm surrounded with powers of which I have no inkling, really. I don't know what they are. I find that so interesting. I don't know. He lived in New York. He believed in form、mm-hmm. and in depiction. And in portrayal,、mm-hmm. he did not believe in psychologizing, for、mm. example. And he talks about this. He talks about Dostoevsky, for example. He says, Dostoevsky doesn't psychologize his characters. His characters speak,、mm. and that way they reveal themselves. But it's the character psychologizing, it's not Dostoevsky psychologizing.、Mm. And he really internalized that. Bashev is saying, I really internalized that lesson and really stuck to it. And so in that environment, Singer basically. Even though in Yiddish he was functioning as a public intellectual, writing cultural criticism, writing essays, writing theater reviews,、mm-hmm. in English he was increasingly focusing himself into the role of the storyteller, the old fashioned storyteller from the old country, which culminated with his release of Gimple the Fool、mm. as a collection. I went to the rabbi to get some advice. He said, It is written better to be a fool all your days. Than for one hour to be evil. You are not a fool, they are the fools. For he who causes his neighbor to feel shame loses paradise himself. So, what I said earlier that the mistake I made between Sholom Aleichem and Beshev Singer was in a way a sleight of hand、hmm. by Singer to put himself forward with this image, even though in reality he had this whole other approach, this whole other body of work that didn't really find a place in American culture、hmm. at the time. His larger mission was to bring a particular kind of spiritual life and energy and drive into American culture through literary fiction.、Hmm. How does Simple Gimple do that? Essentially, he does it in three ways. One, he picks up the folklore like storytelling of Rabbi Nachman,、mm-hmm. who himself wrote a story. Let's call it The Tale of a Sage and a Simpleton.、Hmm. And he adapts one of the early sentences from that into this story. So the link is very direct. And Rabbi Nachman was creating these stories in order to get across to people who are not necessarily interested in the more traditional Talmudic form of storytelling or Talmudic form of teaching、mm-hmm. and were more connected to, let's say, European folk tales. So he's taking all this Torah and Kabbalah, et cetera, and putting it into these. Fairy tale slash folktale stories. I am Gimple the Fool. I don't think myself a fool. On the contrary, but that's what folks call me. At the same time, he is learning about, reading about, and responding to the crisis in American Judaism at the time,、mm. which is essentially that Jews in America are experiencing. Jewishness in a negative sense. So it's stopping them from going to college, it's stopping them to, from finding a summer home, it's stopping、mm-hmm. them from getting a job, but they're not getting all of the positive parts of Judaism.、Mm-hmm. So the ideals, the principles, the rituals, the ceremonies, the tradition, et cetera. And so they're kind of saying, well, what, 
why do I need this Judaism if if all it does is make it hard for me to right. do the things that I want or need to do, but it doesn't give me any kind of spiritual energy, mm. then what do I need it for? So he sees that. And, he, and these are things that I'm quoting things that he writes and yeah. says, and he identifies it as a need, mm-hmm. which of course is not only a Jewish need. <laughs> and he understands that. Yeah. And that's why the material flows so well into the English later, because it was an American spiritual need, but he accessed it through what he knew, mm-hmm. which was the Jewish community. So that's the second part. And the third part, we could call it the human drama. So there's the question of loyalty, faith. Also, you're dealing both with Gimple and Elka, who becomes his wife, people who are on the margins of society. She's a sex worker. He's an orphan. She's also an orphan. Mm-hmm. And there was a tradition in small Jewish communities to bring together and marry the people on the margins and pay for their weddings so that mm. they could be kind of included into the community. So this story picks up on that as well. And then there's, of course, the personal drama of she cheats on him, he doesn't want to accept it, and he does want to accept it, and, and then he decides to that living a lie is better than living the truth because at least it's a life hmm. of some sort. So he's doing all of this in real time and creating this modern myth. question about that podcast you do. Are you on the Instagram or the Twitter or the Facebook? You know, like if I have an idea for a podcast, how do I get in touch with you? Love you. Bye. Sup, mom? Uh, yeah. So you can find us on all those things, actually. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just go to PopQuestPod on any one of those and follow. If you want to send us ideas, you can either go over to our website and leave us a message at Podcast. Or you can get us directly at popq at drexel.edu. You can actually find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, I can help set it up when I get home. But then you have to promise me to rate and review. All right. Love you. Bye. How does it circulate at the time that he's writing? So that's very interesting. This is published in March 1945. Mm-hmm. The camps are being liberated. The Soviets liberated around January. The, the Allies are around that time, around early spring. And here Singer singing, <laughs> writing this story. And he's publishing it in a Yiddish journal called Der Yiddischer Kämpfer, which is the Jewish fighter. Of course, fighter for socialism, the progressive fighter. In a Passover Hmm. supplement because hmm. the other part of Tom right Gimple Tom is the original story the simple child so there's the four children in Passover that are described one of which is the simple child mm-hmm. so it's coming out in this completely unknown Yiddish journal <laughs> in a holiday supplement where it would have been buried hmm. basically if Irving Howe and well more Eliezer Greenberg who was working with Irving Howe to edit a treasury of Yiddish tales hadn't decided to include it in that. Hmm. It's amazing like what happenstance can do. Totally. In the sense that somebody saw this, it could have easily been ignored and yet becomes a thing. Yeah, I think that for me that was also a big lesson in, as, as a writer. Where does Saul Bellow come into it? Is he talking about 
finding Simple Gimple and his adaptation. Saul Billow was like basically not interested in this. <laughs> oh, he no. He didn't really want to do it. But Eliezer Greenberg was very insistent. And what Bellow said was essentially that he was too busy to do this. And so Eliezer Greenberg said, well, I'll come to you and I'll read the story out loud and you'll just type up the translation. And he says, fine. And so he comes over, he reads it out, he types it up. According to how he then goes into the other room, polishes it up, comes back. That's the version that they have. They all drink a schnapps. <laughs> and from their perspective, they've invented Isaac a singer, right? <laughs> of course. Thanks to them, the story exists. L'chaim. But Singer invented Simple Gimple for them. <laughs> but he did it so well, the magic trick worked so well that they thought they had invented it. Is he able to react to this? invention of himself it's complicated that's why i'm saying it's not like he said oh this is what i'm going to do right so it kind of happened yeah. and then he saw that it did well mm-hmm. and that not just that he succeeded with it but there was a strong reaction a positive emotional reaction to that and that people had something invested in him playing that role for them mm-hmm. so suddenly he started taking on that role a little more a little more of course he couldn't complain about what they did for him because they really did put him on the map from an American perspective. Mm -hmm. It's just that they and people who read the stories didn't understand how much of his own deliberate Mm -hmm. intentionality went into that. Mm -hmm. That probably brought him to the attention of Cecil Hemley, who was then publisher of Noonday. He was interested in Singer. This is after Family Moscow came out in 1950 and basically flopped. And it was Knopf who published it. And then Cecil Hemley came along with Noonday, published this shorter novel called Satan and Garai, kind of connected to the Kabbalah, connected to possession, exorcism, and then Gimple the Fool in 1957, two years after that. And that was kind of a reinvention because suddenly he became a short form author as opposed to being someone who published an epic novel about Jews in Warsaw. Hmm. So when you as a translator are sitting down to do this book, how do you begin with understanding all of this context, and then the responsibility of moving back and forth between Bellows and Singer's version. The beginning point is really a long-standing criticism of Bellows' translation. Mm -hmm. It's been made many times by scholars and discussed by scholars, and that is the first line. (laughs) That's a pretty bold... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Bellow, come on! So in, in the original Yiddish... I'll do it kind of in a combination of Yiddish and English. He would say, I am Gimple Tam. Mm-hmm. I don't consider myself a Nar. Now, Nar is a fool. Mm. Tam is a simpleton. Mm-hmm. Bello translated it, I am Gimple the fool. I don't consider myself a fool. So he totally hmm. erased the entire tension yeah. of the first two sentences. Now, I, I mentioned that this had been picked up from Rabbi Nachman. In Rabbi Nachman, it's in third person. Mm-hmm. And the narrator says... There was a Tom character, a simpleton character, and he does it in different words. He uses it in more Slavic words, but he explains it's not that he was a nar, it's not that he was a fool, but he was simple-minded, mm-hmm. essentially. But of course, Singer took that and put it in the first person. So the minute that you can say about yourself, I'm simple gimple, I don't think I'm a fool, mm. you've actually created wisdom because you have the self-critical element, you have the self-reflexive element, and that already is interesting. And there's already kind of addressing the obvious, 
right? The next question, which also highlights the repetition and an understanding of like what the follow-up is. Exactly. And so now tell us why that's the case. Right, right? The right. whole story is that is explaining <laughs> those two first sentences. But I did use what I knew about Dostoevsky and Singer's connection to Dostoevsky to create a version that I called Gimple the Idiot. Mm. I'm Gimple the Idiot. I don't consider myself a fool. So we've reintroduced the tension without doing something as silly as calling him Simple Gimple. Then, I don't know, maybe that year or the next, this was all around 2015. I was in New York, and then I ended up on a fellowship at YIVO, at the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research, and I found this journal, a double issue of a journal called Yiddish, published out of Queens College, and I'm looking through it, and I see, oh, there's a play adaptation or a play script, a partial play script of Gimple Tom called Simple Gimple, and the editorial note says this is was made by Besheva Singer. Hmm. I said, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and then I start reading it. Now, having translated it, I'm looking at the lines and I'm saying, oh, this is not an adaptation. This is a translation hmm. of the story. He took the story, translated it himself, and then put it <laughs> in dialogue play form. Oh, interesting. In much of world literature, the fool is considered to be of divine origin. Can you comment on that? I would say that there is a gimple in every human being. There is also a fool in every saint. The saint really believes that what he is, he can make all of humanity like him. And this is his foolishness. But without this naivety, without this foolishness, humanity wouldn't have reached the little which it has reached until now. In this respect, I am one of these fools. It wasn't complete. Mm-hmm. But it was about 60%. Now, in my translation, I made mine first. But after I made mine, I compared it to the bellow. I tried to understand why did he make certain choices? Why do I make different choices? Can I make the same choices? Right. But you realize it's not just about the particular choices. It's the gestalt of the whole thing. Once I found the singer translation, there was no question that this was the one that was going to be the new one. Mm-hmm. right? Because it was the old one. It was actually Singer's own translation, or at least 60% of it. I then started piecing them together. So I would transcribe the singer one, then I would get to the end of what seemed to make sense, and I would put in like Legos, sort of, put in my translation. And then when I came to one of those sentences, I saw that I had translated it one-to-one to to singer's translation. So once that came together, I felt like, okay, Mm. this is a solid thing. Then I took it to my Rebbe, Professor David Roskies, who knows the Bellow translation by heart, probably, Mm. and said, what have I done? Was the hardest part of the translation the confidence? You know, I would almost say the hardest part was the ambiguity around what's going to happen to this Mm. and how can I keep it alive? I Mm. think that was really the question for me. How can I keep the, the energy alive, the tension alive? How can I get across that fire? Mm. Until I found the singer version, there was still a question. Why should David Stromberg translate a new version of Gimple the Fool when Saul Bellow translated it? Perfectly fine, mm-hmm. right? And even greatly fine. Mm-hmm. Where the differences are is about tone, it's about irony, it's about rhythm. I found later in another archive someone who, in his later years, interviewed Bello about his translation. And he said, Well, I was writing The Adventures of Aggie March at the time, 
So I just used that voice. Hmm. So I didn't know ahead of time. And, and I was so nervous about it that we were visiting my wife's aunt and uncle in Vermont for Thanksgiving in 2015. And I was mentioning this and talking to them that I was about the fact that I was trying to translate this story. And her cousin, who was visiting as well, said, well, you know, Saul is buried here. Hmm. And I said, can we go to his grave <laughs> so I can ask for his permission hmm. to publish my translation at that time it was still only my translation and i went and we found the grave and i kind of said to the spirit of saul bello i said look it is not to replace mm. it's to add it's to be next to please give me permission to publish this mm. and the irony of the whole thing is that when we then brought it to restless it was their idea to include the saul bello translation mm. <laughs> And I felt like it was Saul Bella coming back and saying, okay, you can publish yours, but with mine. <laughs> yeah. You said next to. <laughs> and I would say godlike or divine, divinely inspired reaction to the strange fact that one is a human being who has appeared suddenly from where he doesn't really know, for how long he doesn't really know either. And although he tends to take the world for granted and is not surprised by all of these wonderful miraculous things that surround him, he has to pretend not to be surprised because at heart he is surprised, astonished, and delighted. Because I'm also a writer and because my writing is so different from singers, it was always driven by what I feel is like literary activism. Mm. Like, I want this thing to be out. English is the language that I write in and I want to be able to turn this into that and it's also part of how I read it. Hmm. I understand it in a different way and in a deeper way if I translate it. And so I think I was driven by a desire to put my skills and my sensibility at Singer's service hmm. to bring it closer to what he had originally had. When I found that translation, it was clear that that's what I would do mm -hmm. because it was just serving the same purpose, which was to bring it back as close as possible to his voice. I don't want to tell people what kind of a message I have. I rather tell them there is no message in what I'm writing. You read a story and you create your own message. I don't have to do everything for you. What do you think would have happened if you hadn't found that version? <laughs> That's another good I mean, question. again, it's happenstance. Totally happenstance. I mean, this is another example of something that just flipping through, finding this thing and making these realizations that en end up transforming your life for several years. I don't know what would have happened. I probably would have had to have established myself more as a writer and mm. an editor of Singer's work before someone would allow the possibility of putting a different translation out there instead of Bellows. So I think that it would have taken longer. I think it would have ultimately taken longer to bring the story out in a different form. Of course, in my age, there's more to look back than to look forward to. Still, I'm looking forward to because tomorrow I intend to sit down and write another story. The story itself may look back, but I'm looking forward to the story. I have like a bajillion other questions, but there's only so much time on this earth. Agreed. I think the main thing is to make the questions we did ask count. Yeah, I love that. And thank you so much for talking with me about Singer. Thank you. It's a real treat. It's truly my pleasure. Pop the Question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our theme music and episodes are produced by Brian Kantorik, with additional audio production by Noah Levine. 
All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy-Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paula Moranz-Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do.